to be human. If you think back to the first one, which was Steve telling us that we are planned, and he used as an illustration uh, the plans of his house extension. And then I think David went one better last week and showed us the immaculate plans of his hen house. Okay. Now I thought I would bring the plans of, 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 our, of our house extension. There we are. Now that's what you call plans, isn't it? Hey? That's what you really call some plans. There's, there's our house and there's the extension, which you see is quite good. Now, of course, you're probably wondering what this has got to do with the sermon this morning. Well, let me tell you, absolutely nothing. I just didn't want to be left out, that's all. <laughs> okay. Good. So we're looking at what it means to be human, and each week we've come back to the foundational truth spelled out in the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, the first chapter, uh, that man, in contrast to all other living things, uh, is made in the image of God as a pinnacle of the whole of the created order, God made man. God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, brought man into being by saying, let us, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. If we deny that we are God's creation, made in his image, and claim that we're merely a product of evolution, just the outcome of natural selection and chance mutations over millions of years, then we remove any accountability for our morality, with no limits to the depths of moral decline, which we've seen um, in our day, in our age, on our televisions. I bet you've looked at some of the things that are reported there and say, I never believed that man could stoop so low, uh, in, particularly in terms of in, his inhumanity uh, to man. We see from Genesis that man was made with the ability uh, to make choices when God gave, gave him the freedom to choose whether he obeyed God by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was the basic boundary that God had set within which man was free to make choices and live in complete dependence on God without sin. But God warned him that if he ate of the tree, then he would die. But man chose to be look, look beyond this boundary. It seemed not to satisfy him, um, the boundary that God had set, and chose to disobey God and fall into sin and condemnation. And just as God promised, man died. Not just, not just physically, but spiritually. There, there became a barrier between God and man. And he gained knowledge uh, that he um, could not handle and as a result polluted the whole human race. Man still retained the ability to make choices but lost the ability to live for God without sin. Although we still clearly see the image of God in man, that image is corrupted and it's marred. Man was made for fellowship with God, to worship him only, and to love and serve his fellow human beings, and also to care for God's creation, 
We call that the environment these days, don't we? Since the fall, there can be seen a perversion of all these relationships. Man to God, man to man, and man to creation. Man no longer worships God, but worships idols, including himself. And often those idols are the good gifts that God has given us. God gives us abilities and opportunities and so on. And we get so absorbed with them that we forget God and these become more important than God. And also, um, man no longer uh, respects the earth but abuses it. He no longer treats his fellow man as he ought. An example of the image of God seen in man is that we reflect God's creativity. We have the ability to imagine, to reason, to create, to develop, to beautify, become skillful in all kinds of crafts and abilities, uh, gaining cumulative knowledge over the centuries. We have this wonderful thing where one generation passes on knowledge to the next generation and they build on it. So knowledge, if you like, is mushrooming. But this creativity is not self-regulating. We need boundaries and a moral faculty lest we destroy ourselves and others. For example, the discovery of nuclear energy has meant that we can have pollution-free generation of electricity. But it also means that we can destroy whole cities uh, with a single bomb, as happened in the last war uh, in Japan. Also, there have been huge advances in medical science, for which I'm sure we are very grateful. But with the possibilities of what can be done to the human body come the ethical dilemmas of what should be done. And uh, how far should we go in spare part surgery, human cloning, and all the other things that challenge us in this day and age? We live in an age where knowledge is increasing at a tremendous rate. But knowledge itself does not make for a better world. Probably this will be true of people of my generation, but we may look back to an age of relative innocence um, before internet pornography, cyberbullying, and uh, the predatory stuff that goes on on the, the internet, where children were able to grow up in an environment largely shielded from the moral issues appropriate to adults. What primary school children are taught now, I didn't discover till I was a teenager, and possibly I was better off for that. So we need boundaries, especially in our day, with the vast uh, sources of knowledge literally at our fingertips. Everybody Googles these days, well, most people do. Okay? It doesn't matter what you want to know, it's at your fingertips. Therefore, especially in our day, we, we need some wisdom to apply the knowledge and moral conscience that acknowledges and accepts boundaries. So where do we get these boundaries from? What influences our behaviour? Most would accept for a society to exist for the benefit of its members, there need to be rules uh, of acceptable conduct. But also there are inherent, inherent things in society that affect people's behaviour sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. Here are some examples. We, of course, have got laws and the fear of punishment. Um, that is true of most civilised communities. There are religious convictions. Uh, once upon a time, it, people who had religious convictions, one would have thought 
that it was for their good and the good of others. But these days, there are people around the world with religious convictions that carry out all uh, kinds of atrocities in the name of those religious convictions. There are social norms, what your neighbours expect of you. Someone has said that our morality today is what you let your, um, what your neighbours will let you get away with. Um, then there is peer acceptance, particularly for young people. Young people want to be accepted uh, in their group and in their, 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 amongst their friends. They don't want to stand out, they want to be included. So that affects their behaviour. Habits and addictions, instincts, passions, lust, relationships and commitments. I like to think that my, my behaviour is affected by the fact that I'm committed to Joe, my wife. I have a relationship with my wife and that affects my behaviour. Emotions, love, hate, and well-being, tiredness, illness, disability. When we're not feeling very well, then perhaps we're not so eager to fulfil the things that we think we ought to do because it's just too much effort. Maybe physical circumstances. Maybe people who live in deprived housing areas say, my behaviour would be different if I was in a different place, if I was in a better housing situation. But what about conscience? That uh, inner compass, that inner voice. Um, I suggest that our conscience will affect how we respond to those influences that I've mentioned. And of course it's not an exhaustive list, there will be many other things. But for example, peer pressure, uh, peer acceptance. Uh, I guess some young people who are going along with the crowd come to a point and they say, thus far and no, I can't. I, I know you're all doing that, but I can't do that. It's something in us. You know, whether we're, we're religious or not, we have a moral component we call conscience that reflects that we are made in the image of a moral God. Although corrupted because of sin, there is still an innate sense of right and wrong. And I think this is one of the major things that differentiates us from animals. We need not be at the mercy of our biology, that is, our natural drives and appetites. We are free to choose. Or are we? Are we free to choose? Are we always free to choose? We'll think about that a little bit later. But let's look more closely at our conscience. Is our conscience foolproof? Um, uh, Jiminy Cricket uh, said to Pinocchio, or Pinocchio, give a little whistle and always let your conscience be your guide. If you know the cartoon. But, right. Well, is it foolproof? No, um, even though it's a God-given faculty, it is fallen along with the rest of our nature. Some people seem to be able to do things that we think are morally totally unacceptable um, with seemingly no twinge of conscience at all. Whereas others can't make a decision uh, because no matter which way they turn, uh, their conscience troubles them. And uh, we would call that a weak conscience. One indication of the conscience in man is the fact that, generally speaking, we have an aversion to killing another human being. That's general. I, I realise our, our, our prisons um, tell us that there are exceptions to that, but generally speaking, we have an aversion to do that. But soldiers can be taught to ignore this instinct by repeated practice. 
And on, on, in more general terms, if we repeatedly ignore our conscience, it becomes desensitized and what was once offensive to us now becomes acceptable. And if this acceptance becomes an addiction, we then lose our ability to choose. We are not free, we are bound. If we're honest, I'm sure we've all found ourselves doing things we know we shouldn't or not doing the things that we know we should. Even though our conscience is God-given, because we have a fallen nature, God never intended his people to trust their conscience alone, but revealed his plan and purpose for them through various ways. This book testifies that God has spoken. God has spoken to us human beings. Right from the time of what we call the fall that we read about in the, in the book of Genesis, where man uh, disobeyed God, God had a recovery plan right from that point to have a people for himself, a people chosen by grace whom he would shepherd, who would be a holy people and would reflect his glory and be a light to the rest of the world. These people would be an example to the rest of the world. We have been following the birth and development of this people in a previous uh, sermon series in Genesis, you remember. And these people are known as Jews or Israel. And through the chapters of Genesis, we have been following them, the patriarchs. But in the next book, the book of Exodus, we have the account of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their arrival at Mount Sinai where God gave them his laws, the Ten Commandments. Even if people can't recite the Ten Commandments, most people know that about the Ten Commandments. They've heard of them. Those moral boundaries that identify them as God's special people. We see in these laws, together, together with other laws given through Moses, uh, God's desire to restore the three relationships given to man at the beginning. Remember, man to man, uh, sorry, man to God, man to man, and man to his environment. God continued to reveal himself through the history of the Jews, speaking through the prophets, and uh, finally speaking most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ, who is referred to as the Word of God. Jesus preaches the kingdom of God and what it is like to be sons and daughters of the kingdom. And following his death and resurrection, his apostles continued his ministry, calling people to repentance and establishing God's new community, the church. God revealed to the apostles the deeper meaning of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and their writings together with the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John uh, were recognized as scripture that is God's word to us God's truth so in this book we have a wonderful revelation of God himself what God the creator is like not just what he does uh, but what he is like we also have his dealings with human beings from the creation of the world right through so that which is um, foretelling the end of this age, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. This book tells us what he requires of us human beings, made in his image. He tells us what is good and what is bad, what's righteous and what is sinful. 
He tells us that we are accountable to him and what the consequences are of disobedience. This is not because God is a tyrant or a killjoy, but because as creator, he knows what is good for us. He wants to spare us those things that are destructive to our personalities and spoil his image in us and separate us from him. Our creator has the right to say how things should be. Our creator has the right to set boundaries. Well, here we have it then. God's laws, old and new, a manual for life. All we need to, to restore our relationship with him and be declared righteous in his sight, fit for heaven. So that's all we need. Well, no, not quite, because what seems to be good news at first actually turns out to be bad news. Because the more we look into God's righteous law, the more sinful we see ourselves to be and we're condemned by it. We find that although we know God's righteous requirements, we're unable to live by them. This is what the Apostle Paul discovered when the, that the law was, which was good and holy and righteous showed his sin to be even more sinful than he thought. So bad was the effect of this on him that he says this, When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Well, what's he mean there? Well, I think we've perhaps all experienced the fact that when we're told not to do something, that's something we shouldn't do, something perverse within us rises up to say, hmm, perhaps I want to do that. And uh, he says, it's like I died at that point. I remember Terry Virgo gave the illustration um, of a mother who was going out to the shops and she said to her little girl, I'm just going down the shops. Now there's some cakes in the, in the cupboard, don't eat the cakes. And when the mother had gone, the little girl was saying, the cakes, the cakes, I mustn't eat the cakes, no cakes, I mustn't eat the cakes. There's just something perverse in our personality. But for Paul it did not produce the righteousness he so desired. He saw that he was a moral failure and that he was lost and could not save himself. The truth is that even when we know what God requires, even if we feel we love God's law, even when our conscience confirms it, we find that we do not do what we know we should. I don't mean all the time. Of course we don't do that all the time. But enough to confirm the Bible's verdict on us that we are slaves to sin. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was on the top rung of the religious scale in those days. He was an expert in the law. Pharisees were experts in the law. And they, they prided themselves that they lived out the law before other people. And um, you know, he, he was diligent in his practice. But his conclusion was this, as he writes uh, in his letter to the church at Rome. For by the works of the law, that is trying to keep God's law, no man, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul in another place says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was unless the law said do not covet. And now it arouses all sorts of covetous feelings in me. Many of you will have heard of Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer of the 15th century. His experience caused him to come to the same conclusion as Paul. 
He was a German monk who had been taught that God required him to lead a righteous life in order to be saved. What we mean by being saved is not to have his sins count against him and to be able to stand before God, righteous, without condemnation, without judgment. So he, he, he believed that he had to keep God's righteous law in order to be saved. And so he'd grown to hate God for first requiring him to do what he could not do and then leaving him to, fall, to fail. He wrote this, I laboured diligently and anxiously how to understand Paul's word, the expression, the righteousness of God. This blocked my way because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God a sinner. Therefore I did not love this righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. The judgment and condemnation that Paul and Luther felt was not just against them, but against all mankind. Because the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The verdict is that we cannot help ourselves. Trying harder will just make failure all the more. We need help beyond ourselves. We desperately need some good news. I'm pleased to say that this book does not only contain the law of God, but it also contains the gospel of God, which means good news. Gospel means good news. Paul put it like this, having despaired of being right with God, being justified before him by his own efforts, which he calls the works of the law. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Another version says, but now a righteousness from God has been made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So, the righteousness that God is giving us is not about us keeping the law. It's about receiving his righteousness as a gift. And the word, you know, redemption means buying back, paying a price for. Martin Luther finally saw the truth and it totally transformed him. He says this, Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through. I'd formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God. Now I began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word. The question arises, how could God declare us to be righteous when we have lived such ungodly lives how could he give us the gift of righteousness and still maintain his justice and holiness that demands that sin be brought to account sin must be punished the answer is the gospel God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to live a perfect life to fulfill all the requirements the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf and then to die in our place taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin 
and rebellion. God did not lower his standards of holiness and righteousness in order to save us from our sins. He did not lessen his righteous anger against sin. Jesus was obedient to all of God's commands, even unto death, and his death absorbed the wrath of God that was justly against us. Paul put it like this when he was writing to the church at Galatia. When the fullness of time had come, when the right time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word redeem speaks of buying back, paying a price for setting someone free. When Jesus took our place in life and in death, I believe a mighty cosmic transaction took place when Jesus died on the cross. If you've been following the news, you will find that uh, scientists believe that they found out something more about the origins of the universe. And Stephen Hawking, in his um, Wreath Lectures, keeps talking about black holes, black holes all the time. Well, apparently, two black holes can combine and implode and all the rest of it. Fantastic stuff. But I believe the most amazing cosmic activity took place when Jesus died on the cross, which has the, the potential to affect the whole human race and it was a transaction that took place and it's expressed in what Paul tells the Corinthians he says for our sake he that's God made him that's Jesus to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God a modern translation puts it this way for God took the sinless Christ and poured our sin into him then in exchange poured his goodness into us. Our sin was put to Jesus' account, his righteousness was put to our account. Righteousness, that is a right standing with God, is no longer based on trying to keep the law. Instead, we have a righteousness that God puts to our account when we trust Jesus and his righteousness. Confident that our sins, past, present and future, are dealt with and we are free from condemnation and a guilty conscience. So, we are free. Free from the curse and condemnation of the law. Does that mean that now we can cast off all restraint? Uh, that we are free to ignore God's law and do as we like and make up the rules as we go along? Whilst it is true in theory that we could go on sinning, and the grace of God would still be big enough to save us, it's outrageous to think that we should go on singing, sinning when God has redeemed us for his glory and at such a great price. The truth is, we're saved for something. We're actually saved for obedience. We are free, yes, free now to obey, where once we were slaves to sin and not free to obey. Now because we are new creations, we have a heart that wants to please God and we respond in obedience to his commands out of love, not out of fear of punishment. 
Now, as those born again by the Spirit of God, we do not abandon God's righteous requirements, but keep them out of love for the one who saved us. Jesus said this to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I believe that our love for Jesus actually helps us keep the commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So if we love him, we keep his commandments. That is the motivation now uh, for keeping his commandments. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us. Paul said that we were once held captive by the law. We were under the jurisdiction of the law, which was always right, but never lifted a finger to help us. Now we are united with Christ, who calls forth obedience out of love for him and gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. Paul tells the Galatians, For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Then he urges them, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We've been, we've been made free that we may make those choices. We have a choice to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the, the, the desires of the flesh. God saves us, sets us free, and not that we're never tempted to do wrong or we never sin. But now we are free to choose. Sin does not need to be our master. Once we were slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness. Having been made righteous by the love and mercy of God through faith in Jesus, we have an obligation now to live to please him, to live up to what God has made us to be. God has declared us to be righteous, therefore it's our desire to live righteously. Let me leave you with the, the first two verses in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, and I think it just, just helps us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that is, in view of what God has done for us in Christ, in forgiving our sins, making us righteous, calling us his children. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We often consider worship is what we do here on a Sunday morning, and of course it is. But worship is much bigger than that. Worship is how we give our lives to God day by day. The choices that we make. Do I choose to sin or do I choose to obey God? That is part of our worship. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We do that through the word of God. We allow the word of God to wash us, to cleanse us, to teach us. And that affects not just our minds, but our conscience. And I believe if our conscience is going to serve us well, that is in our walk with God, then our conscience needs to be taught by the word of God. He then goes on, Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You may ask, how do I know if I've received God's gift of righteousness? How do I know that I've come to that place? 
it has everything to do with trust. Who or what are you trusting for a right standing before God? Just close your eyes for a moment. Imagine that you have died and you're standing before God and he should say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Where does your mind go immediately? Does it go to your record of, of your life and the efforts to live righteously? Have I done enough? Will the good outweigh the bad? Or do you look to Christ who is your righteousness? So who are we trusting? Are we trusting ourselves for righteousness? Or are we trusting Jesus, our Saviour, and his righteousness that is imputed to us, is given to us by faith in him, by receiving this free gift of eternal life that God is offering in Christ. If that's something that um, you feel that you've never done, received God's gift of eternal life, that you are not sure that you could stand before God and be declared righteous, but you want to, you want to know how, then please come and talk to us afterwards. Either those who are in the ministry team or those of us at the front here, we'd love to share with you how you can come to that place of assurance where you know you could stand before God and not be accused and not have to give an account for your sin. That is the gospel, the glorious good news. We're going to close by singing a, a song before the throne of God above. <laughs>